Deuteronomy 26 and 27, and, and a little bit of 28 tonight. I, I was going to do all three chapters, but um, there are some riches in, in prophecy in chapter 28 I want to be able to spend more time on. So we're just going to cover, cover about two and a half chapters, and uh, we're going to cover them quickly, as, as you'll see. But as we study through, I, I continue to just, I'm enjoying this so much. And coming down to the, as we wind down to the end of the, of the Torah, coming toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we're in chapter 26 of 34 chapters. These last several will, will go by pretty quickly. And we will, right now, we're slotted to be finished about the first week of December. So another month, month and a couple weeks, and, and we will have finished this, this great book, this, this Sermon of Moses, as we've talked about again and again. And you know that the children of Israel are now only days away from entering the promised land as Moses speaks these words. Moses himself is but moments away from climbing up Mount Pisgah where he will die outside of the land, not gaining the promise given to the people, but he will be buried by God. And I, I still find that fascinating. He's the only man in history whose funeral was presided over by God whose actual burial was done by the Lord. How that looked, I have no idea, but the Bible just tells us that he was buried. The Lord buried him there at the top of that mountain. Amazing. But as as Moses' great sermon begins to come closer to an end, I think you're going to begin to notice a growing sense of concern in Moses' words. Almost a troubling disquiet centered around this dichotomy, and you can read this in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, where Moses says, The rock, his work is perfect, and all of his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. That's his description of the Lord. It's a right and true description of God our Father. But paired to that, he says in verse 5 of Deuteronomy 32, They have acted corruptly toward Him. They are not His children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Put another way, the Lord is good and righteous and true. I am not and neither are you. (laughs) God is perfect in all His ways. We are not. God is absolute righteousness. We have a sin nature. God never makes a mistake. We mess it up all the time. The dichotomy of being children of God, a God who is perfect, and a children who are imperfect. And as beautiful and perfect and wonderful as God is, so His law is also beautiful and perfect and right in all of its words. But there's not a man or woman alive who can keep the law perfectly. And tonight we're going to read about that. Moses sets up that standard, that, that um, actual occurrence they're going to have when they come into Israel... That special day where they're going to experience blessing and cursing. Blessings given out in chapter 27. Curses for disobedience in chapter 28. But the truth is, when you line up blessing and cursing, the cursing so quickly quickly cancels out the blessings in our lives outside of Jesus. Because the blessings require and demand absolute 100% obedience. You see, that's what the law declares. You will be blessed if 
you keep the words of this law. If you handle it perfectly, if you are holy, you are going to be blessed. Moses says in Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if, if you obey the Lord your God. If. For you see, it's an impossibility with humanity. This if-then scenario is one that no Israelite, in fact no human being, can measure up to. If you can keep the law, then you're going to be blessed. You might as well just say, you're not going to be blessed. And that's why we study this book with such great joy and inexpressible thanksgiving. Because the more we delve into and understand the exacting requirement of the law, the more we see that the one who is greater than Moses has absolutely saved us from ourselves and from this world. The more we understand grace. Grace gets bigger and bigger and bigger the deeper we delve into the law. Because the further we go with the law, the more we recognize our sin nature and our inability to keep it. And the greater God's grace is before us. John put it this way, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. In Jesus, the sinner becomes the saint. In Jesus, the pitiful becomes the priestly. In Jesus, the fallen are those who are raised to new life in Jesus. It's the, it's the dichotomy in a completely different way. Now the righteous, the unrighteous become righteous because of Jesus. I've heard this said recently. I thought it was really interesting. That, that among churches, churches that are growing, churches that are having an impact and changing lives, tend to look at people as the saints. Whereas churches that aren't growing look at people as the sinners. Now we have to recognize the fact that we have a sin nature. And we've talked about that. But gang, guess what? You are saints in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are priests. You are members of a royal priesthood. Hallelujah. That, that's a blessing. That is our new identity in Jesus Christ. Amen. Am I a fallen person? Yeah, but I've been raised up by Jesus. I am one of the saints. I have a lineage, a royal heritage. I am a child of the King. That's my new identity and that's what I cling to. Not my sinfulness. I cling to my new life in Jesus. And Jesus, as we begin to study in chapter 26 tonight, I just ask that you will pour out that recognition among us. That we would walk out of here with our heads held a little higher, not because of our own pride, but because of our absolute joy in what you have raised us up to be. Saints, priests, a royal family. People who were once not a nation but now are a people of God. And we thank you and praise you for this blessing. And we, we pray that as we go through these words of Moses again, we will see the blessing and realize what it is that you've called us to. Holy Spirit, teach us tonight and keep us warm, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. First one of chapter 26. Moses continues on and he says, It shall be when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and you possess it and live in it, 
that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you bring in from your land that the Lord your God gives you. And you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. You shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare this day to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. And then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. You shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean. Talking about Abraham there. And he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. But there he became a great and mighty and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor upon us. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And he has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now behold, I have brought the first of the produce of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you and the Levite and the alien who is among you shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given you and your household. This is uh, called the first fruits. And it's the first fruits literally of the first Thanksgiving. And we're not talking about pilgrims in Plymouth Rock, although there's a connection there. We celebrate Thanksgiving. We're coming up on it in about a month here. That favorite of all holidays for me, I just love Thanksgiving. I love that it's not as commercialized and everything else and I, as everything else, and I love the food. Amen. It is one. <laughs> Can I get another amen on that? Yeah, there we go. It's a great holiday. But what's happening here, and the connection is interesting, this idea of taking a basket and filling it with the first fruits, and that's what the people were to do. Once they got settled and actually had that first harvest, Get a big basket, fill it up with fruit, take it to the priest, and you rejoice at what the Lord has given you. And you have a day of thanksgiving. And you declare that God has done all these wonderful things, bringing you out and bringing you in and all that he's done. And it reminds me of that interesting symbol of thanksgiving in our culture, the cornucopia. You know the one I'm talking about? That, that usually it's a basket that looks kind of like a horn and it opens up and, and you see pictures of it with uh, fruit and, and corn and different things pouring out of it. And I, that was the first thing that came to my mind when I was reading about this. This basket of the produce of the ground, the first fruits, this, this Thanksgiving cornucopia. The word cornucopia, by, by the way, means horn of plenty. It's from a Greek word. And it's also from Greek mythology. I hate to poke a, a hole in the Thanksgiving tradition, but there's nothing Christian about the cornucopia. It's a mythological Greek concept that certain gods and goddesses would have this cornucopia and, and, and out of it would flow all these good things, that there was a certain magical property to it. And it's interesting to me that it's become the, the picture most immediately associated with Thanksgiving next to maybe the turkey, that cornucopia. And what I got to thinking about, and I want to take you on a little side trip just for a moment because I think this is important. We live in the Western world. We live in Western culture. And there is an incredible influence of Greek background, of Greek lineage on Western thinking. We have a tendency as Westerners, as Americans, to think with a Greek mindset. To have that kind of philosophical processing that comes so strongly, so heavily influenced by Greek culture. 
There's a great influence of Greek thought on Christianity, but here's the problem. Our roots as Christians are not Greek roots. Our roots as Christians are Hebrew roots. And yet so few people in Christianity today recognize or understand what it means to have your roots delving deep into the Hebrew When you think about the Bible and how it was written, obviously the the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, are all Hebrew. But think about the New Testament. With the exception of Luke, every book in the New Testament was written by a Jew. Was written from a Hebrew mindset, a Hebrew perspective. Was written from Hebrew thinking. Now, it was written in the Greek language, which was the lingua franca of the day. It was the prevailing language of the day. But the thought process was Hebrew through and through and that has a dramatic impact on our understanding of Christianity an impact that I fear has been lost in much of the church because we tend to think Greek rather than Hebrew Isaiah 51 verse 1 the Lord says listen to me you who pursue righteousness who seek the Lord look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain but he was when he was but one I called him and I blessed him and I multiplied him and I like that phrase I think that's valuable to us as Christians look to Abraham your father go back spend time in the Hebrew scriptures it's why we spent so much time three years in this Torah in these first five books look back to Abraham consider the root from which you are grown the Hebraic roots of Christianity now you might say well wait a minute Rick the book of Isaiah and that quote you just read about looking to Abraham isn't that for the Jews wasn't that written to the Jews and I would have to concede that yeah it was in fact the prophecies of Isaiah were for the most part written for the Jews or to the Jewish people Although many of the prophecies of Isaiah are also messianic, which means they're for us as well. Because they're about the coming Christ who would come through the Jewish people. But again, in considering our our Hebrew roots, you need to be very clear and understand this. There are those who would say, wait a minute, we don't have Hebrew roots. We're the church and the Jews are the Jews. and, And we've talked so many times about this, but the church replaces the Jewish people it's replacement theology and it is absolutely unbiblical the church does not replace the Jews so how is it that we can have Hebrew roots that we can have a Hebrew lineage and yet we don't replace Israel I want you to process this because I was asked a question just last week right after Bible study by someone who's been going to the bridge for quite a while and she simply said I'm not sure if I understand the difference between the church and Israel and what's the difference? Because aren't we all in Christ and won't, is, if Israel is ultimately going to be saved, then isn't that all through Christ? So aren't we all the same anyway? And isn't the church then, aren't we like the new Israel? I said, no, we're not. Two very different approaches. Two plans of God. A plan for the Jews and a plan for those who would become Christians through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. But it's important to understand the difference. God is not through with the Jewish people. However, we have been drawn into a Hebrew root system. We do have a connection to what I would call our brothers and sisters, the Jews. Our root system, that is the place from whence our faith has come. Let me explain a little further. Turn in your Bibles, keep your finger there in Deuteronomy and go over to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. 
Let me just let Paul explain a little bit of this to you as we read through a few verses here in Ephesians. Paul, a Hebrew among Hebrews, that's how he described himself. A Pharisee, a keeper of the law, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was, was a Jew among Jews, and he writes the following. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. What is that, Paul? What are you talking about? To be specific, that the Gentiles, (laughs) you can almost see Paul smiling here, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power to me the very least of all saints this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him listen every time Paul says Christ Jesus through a Hebrew mind what you need to hear is Mashiach Jesus Messiah Paul is explaining something almost unbelievable to him something overwhelming to him a Jew among Jews a Pharisee among Pharisees for Paul to turn around and say I finally have been given understanding to this mystery that it wasn't just about Israel that Israel was the lineage through whom the Christ the Mashiach the Messiah would come but now this Messiah the administration of the mystery, what he's talking about in all these words in this Pauline language, what he's talking about here is that through the Jewish people came Messiah that the whole world would be saved. Wait a minute. That's exactly what God told Abraham he was going to do. It was actually kind of said mysteriously in the Old Testament scriptures. For God said to Abraham... In Genesis 12, 1, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And so, understanding the difference between the church and Israel, Israel, the people of Israel, are the lineal descendants of Abraham. God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation, many people, and I'm going to bless you and all of your people, those who directly come right from you, Abraham, the people of Israel, then and now connected to Abraham and to the ancient promises by their literal physical birth. God said in Genesis 13, 15, He said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. 
He was standing in Hebron. And so he looked out over all of the land of Israel and God says, I'm giving you the land. By the way, that was part of the question that was also asked to me last week. What's the difference between Israel the people and Israel the land? Well, God gave Israel the land to Israel the people. What we know of as Israel today is actually only a fraction of the real land that God gave to the people. It's only called Israel because the people reside there. But that land was given to the Israelites. God said he would bless the descendants of Abraham, the literal descendants, those who by flesh can track it all the way back to Abraham, their physical birth. That's a physical promise, a physical land promise, and one of many reasons why I believe the Jews have returned to the land even in this generation. But there's more to it here. For the people of Israel are the lineal descendants of Abraham, the people of the church are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. And that's our connection. We are connected to Abraham by spiritual birth, and God said that to Abraham, Genesis 12, 3. He said, and, and, not only am I going to bless you, but in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, you don't have to be a Jew to receive this promise. There are specific promises to the Jews, but there are also promises to the entire world of those who will accept Jesus Christ the Messiah who came through the Jews. And so Paul says in Galatians 3.29, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free or male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. So we don't replace Israel. We join with Israel in becoming fellow heirs to the promise. We've been, as Paul says in Romans 11, we've been grafted in. And I want to make that clear. That needs to be understood. That is theology 101. To get that God had a plan for Israel. And part of that plan was to save the Gentiles. And part of that plan of saving the Gentiles is in fact then later to save Israel. And it's a wonderful plan. Now there are ancient promises that are peculiar to the people of Israel. Which are simply not for the church. As we go further into Old Testament study, we're going to discover many of those. But back to our text now, back to Deuteronomy chapter 26. Understand that once Israel settled the land, they were to bring a basket of the first fruits of the land to celebrate and rejoice. What were they to rejoice about? Look back at verse 8. Two things to rejoice over. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt. That's number one. Rejoice because He brought you out. He brought you out. It was leeks and onions, but now you got milk and honey. You make the choice. What sounds better to you? Consider Egypt. Moses could say, remember where you came from. He brought you out of there. You had no hope. God got you out. No longer will you have to labor in the brick pits. You're out. You're safe. You're delivered. Same with you and me. He brought us out. He got us out of the lives that we were living before. He opened our eyes from the blindness. Les was praying earlier about remembering where he had been and where God had brought him from. And from time to time, though we are saints, we need to remember when we were sinners. We need to remember God brought us out of that. We no longer live there anymore. We are not residents of Egypt anymore. He brought us out. And Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, Remember that you at one time were separate from Christ and excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But with the Lord, it's always more than not being where you were. 
And so the next thing he says in verse 9 is he says, not only did the Lord bring us out, but he says, he's brought us in to this place. He brought us out and he brought us in and that's the second thing to rejoice over Israel. Man, when you bring that basket of fruit, recognize the fact that he brought you out of Egypt, but also that he brought you into this particular land. Thank Him for both. The bringing out and the bringing in. And once again, it is the same thing for us. And sometimes we miss this as Christians. That's why I made that comment earlier that there are churches that focus so much on the sin that you're sinners, that you're failures, that they miss the fact that we were not only brought out, we've been brought in. We are a changed people. We are a new creation. Again, in Ephesians chapter 2, If you want to turn there, you can. I can just read it to you. But Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. Paul writes the following fantastic news. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What groups is he talking about here? He's talking about Israel and the church. The two groups that because of Christ can eventually and will eventually be one. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Paul says he came and preached peace to those of you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And so you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now here's why this is so important. Because if all we do is focus on our sin nature, and focus on our failure, and say, oh, we're sinners, we never grasp the power of being the saints. You want to know one way to deal with sin in your life? Accept the fact that not only were you brought out, you were brought in. You are a saint. You're a child of the living God. You are a priest in the royal priesthood. That is your identity. And let that identity be so powerful and so pervasive in your life that when you even see sin, when you even hear temptation, you say, wait a minute, I'm a priest. I was a sinner, now I'm a saint. I was a failure, now I am forgiven. I walk with Jesus. I think maybe if we spent more time in the empowerment of that, sin would be less of a challenge. But sin is more of a challenge when we hang our heads down and we're depressed and and upset and worried about, man, I just blew it, when's the next time going to come that I'm going to blow it again? The Lord's saying... I lifted you out. I brought you in. You're near. You're part of the family. Embrace it. Accept it. And so, going back to Deuteronomy, the Lord wants rejoicing over that. Of where you've been and where you are, of where He's brought you. Rejoice in all the good that God has given you. Can you say, with all joy today, God's been good to me? Amen. I'm glad to hear that. God has been good to me. He brought us out. He brought us in. Can you say, Lord, you give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
I mean, if we stopped right now and didn't get another blessing from the Lord, would our lives have been blessed enough? I'll tell you what, I've gotten a whole lot more than I ever bargained for. A whole lot more than I ever deserved. If I never have one more good thing happen in my life, I still need to spend the rest of my life thanking Him for all the stuff that He's already done. He has been good to us because He is a good Father. And that being the case, if we can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. If we can say, God, you've been so good to us then we shouldn't have any trouble bringing in the first fruits of His blessing. It shouldn't be a struggle, a challenge for us at all to show up with our basket and to bring the first fruits and say, God, this is the first of the best that You've given me and I am bringing it to You. What do you mean? It's interesting to me that God is never concerned with offending people when it comes to money. This just hit me the other day. The Lord talks, especially with Israel, but in the New Testament as well as the Old, He talks about finances all the time. Jesus mentioned money over and over, saying, Hey, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. It's only in the church and in Christian circles. We just had this conversation at an elders meeting last night. We just talked about the fact that, you know, it's only among human beings that we shy away from talking about money. That, we're, we, that we hedge a little bit when we bring it before people in a church setting. God doesn't have any problem with it at all. He gave it to you. And so he says, hey, how about bringing the first fruits? Now we're going to talk about this a little more on Sunday because I have a sense that on Wednesday nights I'm probably preaching to the choir. But let me encourage you with a couple of things to consider when it comes to bringing the first fruits of all the blessing that God has given you. Two things to consider. Be a first fruits giver. Be a first fruits giver rather than a leftovers giver. In other words, when you sit down and you consider all the good that God has given you, before you write another check, before you pay a single bill, when the paycheck comes in, give God the first fruits as opposed to the leftover. Let me give you this is some of the most sound spiritual financial advice I can give. Don't wait and see what's left after you pay the bills and then decide whether or not you can give. Give first to the Lord as a thank offering of the first fruits. And then see what God's going to do with the rest of what's left. Let Him bless you by showing you that He can provide somehow, amazingly, often miraculously, (laughs) I found in my life, somehow the bills keep getting paid. Somehow the needs keep getting met at times where I think there's no way it's going to happen. Bring the first fruits. Be a first fruits tither rather than a leftovers giver. And I use the word tither there, by the way. Tithing meaning 10%. I, I challenge everybody purpose to give 10% as a first fruits before you write another check. And see what God does with the rest of the 90% that He wants you to keep and use. Secondly, be a first fruits rejoicer. In other words, if you're going to give, give hilariously. Give joyfully. Enjoy writing the check. Enjoy stuffing it into the box. Drive pleasure and rejoicing from that process. Because if it's sticking to your hand as it's going into the box, maybe you should just keep it. And I want you to know I'm okay with that. I would rather personally that if it's sticking, 
Leave it in the checkbook. Don't give it because God wants you to give it with gladness of heart, with rejoicing as in bringing the first fruits. He's saying, praise the Lord for all that you've done for me. Paul says, now this I say, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, but, but God loves a cheerful giver. And that word cheerful we've talked about before is the Greek word hilaros, where we get hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. So if you're going to give, be a first fruits giver and be a first fruits rejoicer. And speaking of tithing, verse 12 goes on and says, When you have finished paying all the tithe, that is the 10%, of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, then you shall give it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, and to the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Now we studied this back in chapter 14. Let me refresh your memory. Every third year, the Israelites were required to give an additional tithe that went to the Levites and the orphans and those who were less fortunate in the nation. So if you combine all of the tithing and giving of Israel, you combine the annual tithes with the Levites portion and the festival tithes and the third year tithes, Israel's annual average giving was not 10%, it was 23% of all that they were given by the Lord. When you put all this stuff together. But then he goes on, and you can see how the Israelites were prayerfully to give. Look at verse 13. You shall say before the Lord your God, you're giving your tithe, you're bringing that tithe in the year of tithing, and you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion from my house, and also have given it to the Levite and the alien, the orphan and the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed or forgotten any of your commandments. I have not eaten of it while mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor offered any of it to the dead. These are all pagan things, offering the tithe to the dead. I have listened to the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. In other words, I'm going to run over these real quickly because we're going to spend some time on this Sunday morning. But you are not to give while mourning. Alright, put it in the box, hon. Okay, you want to do it today? No, I'll do it. <laughs> we're going to get through. But we're going to put it in faithfully. Don't give while mourning. It's the opposite of what Paul said. Secondly, you are not to give while unclean. Don't give while unclean. What do you mean? Jesus said when you're bringing your gift to the altar and you realize that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift and go make it right first. Because more important to Jesus than giving is restoration. Don't give it while mourning, don't give it while unclean, and don't or unclean, and don't spend your tithe on dead things. What exactly does that mean? We'll talk about that more on Sunday. Verse 15. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground which you have given us, a land flowing with milk and with honey as you swore to our fathers. See, they were supposed to say all of this stuff while they were bringing that third year tithe, while they were bringing the first fruits offering. And then verse 16 says, This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. 
You have today declared the Lord to be your God and that you would walk in His ways and keep His statutes and His commandments and His ordinances and listen to His voice. The Lord has today declared you to be His people. I like this. A treasured possession. As He promised you and that you should keep all His commandments and that He will set you high above all the nations which He has made for praise, fame, and honor and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as He has spoken. Moses is beginning to gear up this pleading that I began with that I was talking about. There is an air of concern in Moses' words. Please do this. Listen, you're a treasured people. Follow the commandments. Follow the ordinances. You're His people. Do what He says and listen to His voice. There's a a, a pleading going on here. As we'll see more of this in a moment. Moses pleading with the people. He uses this wonderful phrase. Verse 18, the Lord has declared you to be His people, a treasured possession. The Hebrew word treasured there is segula. You are a segula, a treasured people. The King James Version translates this a peculiar people. You're a peculiar people. The King James also translates that peculiar in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Or in the King James, you are a peculiar people. Now some of us can look around and we say, yeah, I see that. I got the peculiar part. You know? I'm not looking at you in particular, Joe. Just, are you looking at Spence? Yeah. <laughs> there are some peculiarities about us here, gang. But we've got to understand, and this is one of those precious words, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, this word peculiar. Segula in the Hebrew really indicates, and I love this, a treasure chest. That's what segula means, literally. A treasure kept safe, locked up in a chest. That's what Moses is saying you are. You are God's treasure chest. This chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own keeping. His own treasure. Why, Peter says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There it is again. You've been called out and you've been brought in. Brought out, brought in, out of darkness, into his light. And this is God's desire that we understand. That we are a treasured people. Chosen and royal and holy. A people for his possession. That's good news. Now, Moses goes on. Verse 1 of chapter 27. Moses and the elders of Israel charged the people saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. So it shall be on the day when you cross the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and coat them with lime and write on them all the words of this law. When you cross over, so that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord the God of your fathers promised you. And so it shall be, when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal these stones, as I commanded you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones, and you shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones, and shall offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God, And you shall sacrifice peace offerings and eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. 
And then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel saying, Be silent and listen, O Israel. This day you have become a people for the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do His commandments and His statutes which I command you today. And Moses also charged the people on that day saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. That's six tribes. Now for the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. Okay, so you've got two mountains here. We talked about this a few Sundays ago, I believe. One mountain that would be the mountain of blessing. The other mountain that would be the mountain of cursing. Mount Gerasim is the mount of blessing. Mount Ebal, the mount of cursing. And it's interesting, and you need to understand this, that Ebal was to the north, and then Jerizim to the south. And in between Ebal and Jerizim was a valley that, that stretched out. And so Moses and the elders and the leaders of Israel would come into this valley. And six of the tribes listed there in verse 12 would be up on Mount Jerizim to the south, and the other six tribes would be up on Mount Ebal to the north. And in the middle of that valley... The leaders of Israel, actually Moses wouldn't be among them, but the leaders of Israel and Joshua would begin to pronounce blessing and curse. A cursing and a blessing. And every time blessing was pronounced, those on Mount Gerizim would shout, Amen! And it was kind of like, who's got, we've got spirit, yes we do, we've got spirit, how about you? And then this team over here, we've got the spirit, yeah, we're cursed. <laughs> And it's kind of a bummer if you think about it. You've got the blessed people over there on the Mount of Blessing, Mount Jerusalem, and you've got the cursed people over there on Mount Ebal. But every time a curse was stated, if you don't do this, here's the curse, then those on Mount Ebal would say, Amen. And every time a blessing again, those on Mount Jerusalem would say, Amen. And a curse, Amen. And back and forth and back and forth, they would go. Now it's important to understand that. Let me read on a little further and we go back and look at this. But verse 14 beginning says, The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And then all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Mount Ebal. Cursed is he who dishonors his father, or mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Are you recognizing some of these things? We've studied these over the weeks. Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road, and all shall say, Amen. That reminds me of one of the funniest movie scenes I think I've ever seen. And I think it was in, I think it was in Mel Brooks' silent movie which I'm not sure I should recommend because it's been so long since I've seen it and I have no idea if it's you know, good to see or not. But there's a scene in it where two men, walking dogs, go into this public restroom in a park. One of them is a blind man and he's walking with his blind seeing eye dog and he stops outside the restroom and leaves his dog there and goes into the restroom. Another one is his dog, a man playing with his dog, another dog that's, uh, I guess, both German shepherds, and he leaves his dog tied up outside and goes into the same restroom. The blind guy comes up out and accidentally gets a hold of the real playful dog <laughs> and off he goes and you just see him being dragged through the park. Meanwhile, the guy who can see comes out and he gets the other dog who is a seeing eye dog and he starts walking with it wondering why it's, you know, it's such a good dog and he gets to a crosswalk 
And the man starts to cross the street, but the dog stops and it pulls the man back and lands flat on his back. It's a very funny scene. I'm not doing it justice here. <laughs> but cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road. It's not a good thing. So the people on Mount Ebal, they say amen. Verse 19, cursed is he who distorts justice due an alien, orphan, and widow, and all the people shall say amen. And I wonder, I'm going to just throw this out to be politically incorrect. I wonder what it means to give justice to the alien in our culture and our country today. I wonder how the Lord would apply that when we talk about the, what is it, 11 million illegal aliens that are in America. I just, I don't know. Just throwing that out for you to chew on. The justice due a foreigner, an alien, an orphan or a widow, and all the people shall say, Amen! Those again on Mount Ebal. Curse, verse 20, is he who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's skirt and all the people shall say, Amen. Curse is he who lies with any animal. And I appreciate the fact that Moses said any. Let's be clear. Any animal. Inappropriate. And the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father or of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with his mother-in-law. And I just get a shudder. <laughs> and all the people shall say, Amen. <laughs> Cursed is he who strikes his neighbor in secret. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And I think, oh no. That means cursed is everyone. Because we cannot confirm the words of this law by doing them. And not a single person in Israel was going to be able to do that. And yet, cursed are those who can't keep this law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Now, here's the upside. The people on Jerusalem, they're waiting for their chance to shout out. So here they get it. Verse 1 says, Now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed you shall be in the city, and blessed you shall be in the country. And blessed shall be the offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock and you can just hear Mount Jerusalem going off. Amen, amen, amen. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord shall cause your enemies to rise, who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. I like that. In other words, they're just running completely freaked out. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns. I really like that one. And in all that you put your hand to. And He will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to Himself. As He swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways. So all the peoples of the earth, there's that little hint, that little secret, it's going to go out beyond the Jewish people. All the peoples of the earth will see that you're called by the name of the Lord and they will be afraid of you, that is, they will hold you in awe. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body, in the offspring of your beast, in the offspring of your, in the produce of your ground, in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. Oh, the Lord will open for you His good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not 
borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail, and you only will be above, and you will not be underneath. If you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today, to observe them carefully and do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today to the right or to the left to go after other gods and serve them. All of these blessings and curses are going to be pronounced. And as they're pronounced again, you've got the amens coming back and forth from Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, back and forth as they shout amen to the reading of these commands. And amen, you understand, means so be it. So be it. If we don't keep these commands, amen, so be it, we will be cursed. If we keep them, amen, so be it, we will be blessed. Now, I think you got that picture, but watch this. Go back now to chapter 27 and verse 4. We're not going to go any further than we just read tonight, but I want to show you a few things before we finish. Verse 4 of chapter 27. It says, So it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you set up on Mount Ebal these stones, as I am commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones, and you shall not wield an iron tool on them. Build the altar of the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer it on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God, and you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and eat there, and rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. Now, best as I can understand, there were two structures that were going to be set up. And four quick things to jot down about this. A structure was built on Mount Ebal. The first structure was a structure of stones coated in lime, over which was written on every one of these stones all of the words of the law which must have been you know, a, a quite a little practice that they had to go through. Get all the laws written on these stones, and then they stacked up these stones as a monument there on Mount Ebal. But in addition to that was also an altar. And the altar was set up there on Mount Ebal, right next to the structure of stones, the stones that represented that, that law and had all the law written all over it, an altar in addition to the stones. So you've got both side by side. Both, however were built of plain, natural, uncut stones. And I was looking at that concept of the uncut stones and and, and processing that. Why uncut? Why so natural? Why not make it a little bit ornate? And that's the exact problem. The structure and the altar were not to be fancy. They were not to be ornate because neither the structure nor the altar were the issue at hand. Now you'll see this throughout the scriptures that any time God has someone built an altar he tends to have them built it out of uncut stones or dirt or at best the altar that is in the courtyard of the tabernacle was made out of bronze. Not out of gold, not bedecked and bejeweled, not out of platinum, just out of bronze. Simple. Why is that, Lord? Because over and over in scripture we see it's not the altar that's the issue, it's the sacrifice on the altar that is the issue. That's to be the focus. And in my mind, I think we've got a little bit too much cross-focus going on even in the church today. Too much cross-focus. I'm the kind of person, mentally, I I don't handle cross-talking real well. If Cheryl and I are out with another couple at dinner and Cheryl is talking to the other wife across the table and I'm trying to talk to the husband, I just I can't handle it. My mind just goes, you know, I, I can't track two conversations or three conversations at once. It drives me nuts. Because I want to know what everyone's saying. 
I have to know. It's just who I am. Cross-focusing is anything that takes our attention off of the primary issue. Like cross-talking, where you're going back and forth and trying to track. Well, what's really being said here? Cross-focus. T-shirts. Logos and church signboards and ornamental crosses in the great cathedrals that that pepper Europe and the golden chain crosses or, or crosses that top uh, large jewel encrusted scepters and all this focus on the cross takes our eyes off the issue and that's it's not the cross it's the one who is on the cross it's not the altar it's the sacrifice on the altar that matters our focus isn't the cross it's the Christ it's not the altar it's the sacrifice and the Hebrew writer said the following since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let's run with endurance the race set before us how do we do that? by fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross you can almost see what the writer saying here is Jesus didn't see the cross He didn't look at the cross. He looked through the cross to the joy set before him. He looked beyond the cross to the joy that would come. The wonder of that sacrifice, the wonder of what was going to happen through this process. Oh, he endured it. He despised the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the Hebrew writer says, consider him, not the cross, not the altar, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that's the issue. That's the primary thing. It is not the cross, it's the Christ. And I am convinced that so much of the despair and the weariness among Christians today comes from looking at the cross instead of the Christ. Because the cross speaks of one thing, death. The cross speaks of the ugliness of sin. Again, it's I'm a sinner mentality as opposed to I'm a saint. For when I look to find Jesus on the cross, He's not there anymore. The sacrifice is completed, it's finished. He's done the work to make you and I the saints that we were called to be. People say, oh, it's hard to be a Christian. And I'm persecuted and I'm misunderstood and we're losing ground in the courts and the Congress and the Capitol. And I say, but we're saints. We're a royal priesthood. We haven't lost anything. We have still won. We are still on the winning team, no matter how dark and dismal it may seem. I see a lot going on right now with North Korea and the threat of nukes over there. Not a whole lot of talk is going on about Christians in North Korea who meet to the very threat of their lives who gather with, with horror. One pastor out of North Korea said, for a Christian, it's, it's, if you believe in Jesus, you will be saved and go to heaven. If you don't believe in Jesus, you will be condemned and go to North Korea. And he wasn't kidding. That's how bad it is for Christians in North Korea right now. Struggling, fighting, again. Even our brothers and sisters, tormented and tortured in North Korea, are winners, saints, royal priests, part of the family. And so we're called to fix our eyes on Jesus and consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that we won't grow weary and lose heart. You want joy in the Lord? Look at Jesus. You want happiness as a Christian? You focus on Jesus Christ. 
who has won the battle. Well, a couple other things about these altars. The altar, interestingly itself, the altar, not, not the stack of stones, the altar bore two offerings. Two specific offerings are mentioned here. Verse 6, the burnt offerings. And verse 7, the peace offerings. Now, going back, for those of you who made it all the way through studying Leviticus, you may recall that the first five books of Leviticus, we read about and studied the five primary offerings of Israel. Leviticus chapter 1 talked about the burnt offering. Chapter 2, the grain offering. Chapter 3, the peace offering. 4, the sin offering. And 5, the guilt offering. And there were five distinct offerings that Israel had to bring or, or was encouraged to bring before the Lord. Each one of these offerings, by the way, and you can go back and, and go through the study, and I, and I know we have it on CD as well, it's worth looking at and considering, all of these offerings point clearly and distinctively to Jesus Christ. There are specific things about every one that point to and show us Jesus, and it's awesome and it's fantastic. But in this case, regarding Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing, and Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing, only two of these five offerings are used. Only two, the burnt offering from Leviticus 1 and the peace offering from Leviticus 3. Now quickly, the burnt offering speaks of dedication. It speaks of a believer's very serious and sober dedication to the Lord. You would bring a bullock to the priest to be offered up. And in bringing that offering, you are proclaiming an absolute dedication to the Lord. Dedicating your life to obedience to the Father. The peace offering, on the other hand, was basically a holy barbecue. Where you came and brought the peace offering and got to eat part of it right there with the Lord in fellowship with the Lord and it speaks not of dedication but of joyful satisfaction it's, it's like we were talking about Thanksgiving it's how you feel at the end of the Thanksgiving feast where you just sit back and the football game's on and you can't watch half of it because you know that, that chemical that's in turkey begins to work in your mind and you just want to sleep it's that kind of joyful satisfaction that comes about with the peace offering. These were the two offerings brought there on Mount Ebal. But you need to understand something about the five offerings of Israel. The first three were not obligatory. They were completely optional. No one had to bring a burnt offering, a grain offering, or a peace offering. You didn't have to do it. It was the option of the Jew whether or not they wanted to do it. You had to bring a sin offering to cover your sin. You had to bring the guilt offering to be relieved of your guilt. But the first three were not compulsory. You could bring them or not. Now considering that, hold that thought. Why is it just these two offerings? Notice where these offerings were given. And this is the fourth point to consider. The altar... The altar was located not only next to this stone structure of the law, but it was located on Mount Ebal. We talked about before how those who were of the, the Israelites who were on Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing, that'd be a bummer of a place to be, except that that's where the altar was. Now isn't it interesting God would set it up that way? This stone structure that spoke of the law, all of these stones covered in lime, and they were heavy, burdensome things with the law written all over them. Not an easy thing to move. And right next to it, the altar where sacrifice was made to cover the curse. What curse? The curse of the law that sat right next to it. It's interesting that Mount Ebal, Ebal the word literally means heap of confusion. 
That was the name of that mountain. The mountain was the heap of confusion. And that's what the stack of stones with the law written on them suggested. A heavy heap of confusion. Who can bear this? Who can figure out these 613 laws and know how they all work together? Who possibly can lift this heavy weight? But where the difficult and demanding curse of the law stood, on the mountain of cursing, there also stood the altar, going back to these two offerings, the altar of voluntary sacrifice. Voluntary sacrifice. God chose two of those five offerings of Israel that were voluntary, and it speaks exactly of what Jesus did for us in taking our curse voluntarily Matthew 26:39 Jesus fell on his face and prayed saying my father if it's possible let this cup pass from me yet not as i will but as you will not my will lord if i go to the cross i go voluntarily i go because it's what you want me to do not because it's what i want to do but i will go for you i think this is fascinating the word if it is possible, that phrase. My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That word in the Greek is dunatos. Literally, if it's in your power, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Guess what? It was in God's power. And Jesus knew it. And yet He says, if it's in your power, please let this cup pass from me. And it's the same Jesus who, who when asked if it was possible for him to heal a demon-possessed boy, said the following to the dad. He said, if all things are possible, do not toss to him who believe. What's the point? Well, Jesus in his ministry was confronted by the same question now that he's asking at the end of his ministry. The question was, is it possible for God to do this? And Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believe. The power of God is absolutely available to you if you will believe. But here's Jesus in the garden. And he's saying, if it's possible, if it's within your power, Lord. But he said the same thing that, what do you mean, if? You almost ask the question, well, Jesus, are, is your faith faltering here? Are we missing something? Is Jesus confused? Is he just so overwrought that he's saying this and not thinking about what he's saying? Absolutely not. Jesus was stating the obvious. Father, you alone have the power to do this. You do have the power to do this, Lord. But I voluntarily offer up myself as the sacrifice. I will go. I know you have the power to save me. And I know you're not going to because your will is more perfect. And I'm going to the cross. He chose to stand on the Mount of Cursing. Not Mount Ebal, Mount Calvary, the real Mount of the Curse. He chose to be on that altar. That the curses which render my life a heap of confusion might be obliterated forever. And if you ever feel like life is a heap of confusion, welcome to Mount Ebal. That's where we stand, on that Mount of Cursing. And life is a heap of confusion until the sacrifice is made and the curse is obliterated. Which again is exactly what was fulfilled in Christ. And so like these two offerings, in Jesus I can choose a life of dedication, serious, sober dedication to the Lord. Though I may yet sin, though I may have failures in my life, I can choose to be dedicated to the Lord. I can choose a life of joyful satisfaction in the Lord because the curse is overcome. The law fulfilled in Christ. And that's how we can study this law. We go through this law. 
Consider it, learn it, discern it, and be blessed by it because Jesus, our Lord and Savior, paid for all the demands of this law. And I believe that's what John was getting at when he wrote, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Verse 15 of chapter 28, and we'll end tonight. Moses says, But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all His commandments and His statutes, with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And from this point on in chapter 28, Moses possibly tearfully begins to prophesy about Israel's future. It's dramatic. It's stunning how how precise the prophecy is. And Moses is simply saying, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen, Israel. And I think Moses had a sense that the curses would far outweigh the blessings in the life of Israel at least until Jesus, Yeshua Mashiach, would come as their Messiah, as the Christ, and bring salvation. Well, we're going to stop there for now and we're going to cover more of chapter 28 next week. There's a lot to process in this next section. But let's pray one more time. Lord, we praise You. We thank You that the curses that the confusion, that all the difficulties of life, Lord, they are washed clean by the great sacrifice of Jesus. And Lord, I know in the teaching that we constantly come back to this sacrifice. We constantly come back to Jesus on the cross. Over and over, you, you bring us to this place again and again. For Father, it's, it's at the cross. It's before the Christ that we find the wonder of our forgiveness. The wonder of the bringing out and bringing in that you've done for us in our lives. And fathers, we've studied these things and considered these few chapters tonight. I just pray that you'd send us out of here encouraged, Lord, and reminded that we are a royal priesthood, a people blessed, a people who have lives that are fruitful. And Father, I pray that you'd teach us how to spend that fruitfulness on you and your kingdom and on getting the job done that we might share this joy more and more with other people. Father, bless the study of your word. Write it on our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.